freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe. International heroes. What? This is episode 94 of G.I. Joeberg. My name is Stephen. I'm a South African. There are two other South Africans here. Introduce yourselves, boys. Robert. I'm Paul. Oh. And there's an American in the mix. Hey, did you see that one coming? Who is that, Yankee Doodle? Just decompressing from Long Beach Comic Con, where I spoke with a G.I. Joe voice actor, and I'll elaborate on that shortly. Damn, Cujo's always got something to say. Whereas <laughs> us local boys, we just represent by going, Oh, Paul, Rob, Stephen. Yeah, this is episode 94 of G.I. Joeberg. But yes, it is episode 94 of G.I. Joeberg, and it is September, and it is springtime in South Africa, and it is also a tradition of ours to, in September, talk about G.I. Joe cartoons. It's also Labor Day in America. Oh, congratulations, laborers. Which, uh, on all the sort of G.I. Joe groups on Facebook, seems to be a reason to, like, auction off your collection. I mean, I've seen a record number of, like, not private auctions, but auctions within uh, Facebook groups, live auctions, and like a guy sitting in front of his camera with a figure. Okay, do I hear ten dollars? Greg does that. Fifteen dollars. Yeah, it's popular, man. And there's been a sudden spike. Either that, or where have I been? I don't know. Maybe living under a rock in Africa. But you've blown me off course, Paul. <laughs> Yes. Because I was going to unpack the fact that we've That's always us. done a miniseries uh, review in September because it's always coincided with a Sunbow Cartoon miniseries anniversary, 30th year anniversary. Back in 2014, we did The Weather Dominator. In 2015, we did The Pyramid of Darkness. In 2016, we did A Rise, Serpentor Arise. And in 2017, we're not going to do the movie again. We did that in our prehistory. Also, with Michael Mercy, we did some live rewatchings and commentary on the mass device. So that's in the can as well. You can go back and listen to that if you, if you missed it. So what does that leave us with? Well, we put it out to pasture on Facebook, on our group there, to find out if there was perhaps a listener suggestion that we could roll with. And we got back quite a nice response. But one of the respondents said Operation Dragonfire, which does not celebrate its 30th anniversary this year. But we were like, ah, you know what? To hell with it. We need to do a mini series. We need to do five consecutive episodes. So the anniversary thing goes out the window. And since we are in a kind of a 90s frame of mind in our uh, 90s episodes, Operation Dragonfire is the gateway drug into the 90s madness that was the Deke animated series of G.I. Joe. So we're going to do Operation Dragonfire, days one through five, here on G.I. Joburg. I almost bought a Devastator. <laughs> but before we get into that, have we got any new shit to talk about, boys? Yes! <laughs> Outstanding. Well, do you need any further prompting? Have at it, Paul. No! I got a more. <laughs> I'm not going to sing Dean Martin. Sorry, I've already done that on our unboxing, which is on the internet. <laughs> I've been wanting to tell people for like three episodes now that I got a moray. I got a moray. I don't have to say anything more about the moray. For G.I. Joe, they had the tomahawk, and for Cobra, they had the moray. I would say the moray in toy terms is the sort of equivalent to the, the whale. tomahawk. No, <laughs> it's the equivalent of the tomahawk. Because wow. 
I've never tried to float my tomahawk. <laughs> That's just because you haven't done any sea missions. It's, it's not like a Thomas Seahawk. Yours is just a tomahawk. No, but like, it really is. It's like, I, I think it's the Cobra vehicle that really is as cool as the tomahawk. It is just, it has all the bells and whistles and it, it sort of, it, I, I don't know, it just accommodates similar kind of play patterns in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously it's water versus the air, but it's also a, it's a troop carrier. It's got a lot of great features. It comes with an amazing driver. It's got little nooks and crannies. It's got some great weapons. Uh, the box is similarly sized. I'm pulling that out of my ass, but I'm just going to go with it anyway. The vehicles are similarly sized that I can back up. You know, it's like nobody goes, oh, uh, this is almost as cool as the whale. I mean, the whale is amazing, but I don't want to go, of course. It's just, yes. So I finally got a moray, and I got a pogo. But I've already said that. Okay. Okay, I'm done now. I'm done. I feel good now. Mm. I feel Congrats. good that you feel good. Amora is a spectacular toy, and one that I received on my 21st birthday from Robert, actually. So uh, it's got a great uh, nostalgic ring to it for me as well. Oh. Oh. Isn't that sweet? Ah, well done, 21-year-old Rob. Wait, 22-year-old Rob. <laughs> 22-year-old Rob had money. 22-year-old <laughs> Paul also had money. <laughs> I missed those days. Rob, you got anything new? Not, not yet, and and not Joe related. So, I, I hesitate to mention non-Joe related stuff on Ti Joeberg. <laughs> Why? Because the 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 troll Why, under that, the Rob? bridge is going to um to eat you. <laughs> Jump out! It's me. I'm the I'm the Joe troll. <laughs> yeah. Only Gi Joe on Gi Joeberg. No, Rob, come on. Let us know what you're what you're excited about. What's on its way? Let us know, let us know, let us know. <laughs> I still managed to. Anyway. The cast of G.I. Joburg, the musical. We're all jokers. I ordered a 1 to 100 scale Master Grade. Uh, no, is it Master Grade? Providence Gundam. Providence yeah, Gundam, yes. Master Grade, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to get building on that when I get a chance. And money to buy paint and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I, I did get a bunch of other things. Um, I am really into Twin Peaks. And I went a bit crazy and basically bought the entire range of Funko Pop figures from Twin Peaks. So I now own all of those. If you or a loved one... Uh, suffers from drug use or drug abuse, please call this hotline. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what the hell, Rob? What the actual fuck? <laughs> Pops! What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, that's cool, man. Whatever fucked your boat, dude. I'm, I'm, I... hold, hold on. Robert, that's that's not a bad transition. Um, you didn't know that. Do you have any more to throw on there? Um, other stuff to uh, um, no 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 that that that's it um I I just momentarily forgotten but uh, how how does that relate to what you got Kujo? Well, it just so happens that Long Beach Comic Con went down this weekend. Ah. Um, and dude, you know from experience that cons for introverts and and let's just say that most artists are because you're seeing people in their like most unabashed state really. 
So I, I'm still kind of decompressing over all that. But I did, I did run into uh, Will Ryan. If you know that name, you're probably familiar with the Sumbo series. He played three voice characters, many, many more, but three face. Footloose, I believe, is the first. Mutt is the second. And Rock and Roll is the third. So a, a pretty big cog. Um, he's got a book, if his name starts to interest you. But basically, came up, and he's up there with a couple voice actors. Uh, he was sandwiched between two two pretty decent names. So there's people out there that, that think he's still still uh, or he's he's a draw. But he was stationed right next to Cheryl Fenn. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, no. Is she also a pup? Uh, well, she is because she was on Twin Peaks. Unless I'm not saying her name correctly. Yeah, that is right. She played. Um... She's that striking brunette that always oh, okay. has your eyes while she's on screen. Yes, 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 yes. And she's she's an she's an older actress now. I, I believe the the most recent series of Twin Peaks just wrapped wrapped up. And I'm here to say that her eyes still twinkle. Like I'm I I'm not saying I'm fawning over her. She's still striking. It it, it was it was cool to uh, be in proximity. But it did not distract me from my mission. Um, I started chatting up uh, Will Ryan, and I and I will say that the people that handle him do, do a great job. Uh, second time I've crossed paths with them, and hopefully we'll see them at JoeCon. I didn't really know because my previous experience, if you if you go digging, you, you'll find that I've talked to GI Joe voice actors before. I believe I, I've talked to uh, Baroness. Her name slips my mind right now. Morgan, Morgan Hoffman. Thank you. Uh, awesome conversation, as well as uh, Zach Hoffman, but Zartan. who played Zartan? <laughs> yeah. But Will Ryan is a. Uh, he, he kind of showed up with that that loose uh, news newsboy cap on, and I think if you've seen his kind of like headshot anytime, he's got that cap on. So I don't know if that's a signature look. It's a good look. I, I'll wear that hat if I find one. But uh, he was very warm. Asked me my name, shook my hand, and just just right off the bat was very open. Where a lot of people are are, are closed. Good dude. Uh, I started, of course, my angle was was GI Joe. So I asked him, you know, I brought up a couple characteristics. I said, uh, I'll, I'll, th- I'll float a couple characteristics from characters you've played. Uh, let me know how they match up. And I said, Footloose, you know, walked away from his commitments and came to the coast. And I said, uh, Rock and Roll, you know, was, was in a music band. And I said, and of course, Mutt was an animal lover. I said, how do all those fit with you? And he, uh, he kind of said... He he was he was born in Chicago, I believe. I really hope I'm not I'm not messing that up, but I believe he was born in the Midwest. And now of course now he's on the West Coast, much like Footloose did. So he came out here, found the entertainment business, was in a rock band, like rock and roll, but he said they were no good, so he still has his hearing. We both laughed about that. Um <laughs> So, uh, and he, he is a dog lover, although he didn't elaborate on that point. But when we were talking Joe's, I asked him how much he mingled with the cast, you know, because my interest in solving the mystery is where do the main players come from? I know Friedman's a player, and, and if, if people always clown Friedman, they clown the movie. Dude, it's no joke. In 99, we're going to tell you how serious it is. But 
Friedman is a big player. A couple of them have mentioned a cog, and, and this isn't any kind of like, there's nothing, I'm not driving at anything while I'm investigating. It's just interesting to me. But yeah, I found it interesting that most voice actors in that in that cartoon didn't cross paths or didn't share a social circle. So uh, I'm just throwing that out there. I, I think that's interesting. Many of them found out after the fact that they had worked with very talented people that they had no idea. You know, they didn't know who those voices were until much later. And and Will Ryan was barely aware that that the Sunbow series was on DVD. So mm. I'm curious about Somebody how that needs network. a royalty check. What's that? <laughs> Somebody needs a royalty check. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh well, GI Joe Bird controversial as usual. <laughs> Somebody should fire his agent. That's what. Well, I, I'm not going to go there. I, I'll just say that it's interesting to see how Hasbro and some of the smaller components are actually handling G.I. Joe. Um, and I, I'll, I'll stop there. But uh, it, it was a pleasure talking to you, Will. And I did mention that uh, I hope I see you in Nashville, but I was intending to say Chattanooga, where, where the final Joe Con is. So hopefully I get you on the record there. Uh, I'd love to chat you up again. It was a pleasure. He signed a picture of Mutt for me, you know, that unforgettable file card art. So, yeah, uh, another Joe talent. Let me break off a little more, Joe. Jim Godfrey sent a figure through the mail. Our Joe Berg conversations inspired a figure, which is really quite striking. Um, I'll do a, rev- a review on it in due course. Jim's the name and customization right now. I mean, show me somebody better. But we'll, we'll get to that. And I-, I think I'm spun out on Joe. I got so much to say, but... I don't want to bog down the proceedings. Let's talk definitive figures. What do you say? <laughs> I have one other item on the agenda before we talk definitive figures, my man. I think I'm going to reach into the mailbag. It's about time we did something like that. Uh, mailbag! Postbox the pit. Here we go. But we've got some fan mail from longtime friend of ours, Dan Shemansky. I'm going to read an excerpt and get your very candid responses, gents. He says, Regarding the podcasts, I haven't recorded many comments to share with you as I typically do. I'm not sure why. I'll try and correct that. But I do have a request that I would like one day to get answered. Cujo regularly assigns animal companions to listeners. However, to my knowledge, I am not aware of the Joburg team getting any companions. If so, what would they be? My thoughts were possibly a sloth for Rob, since the Defiant (laughs) unboxing video had him sleeping in, despite the excitement he's frequently missing from early podcasts due to late-night partying. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. I figured a sloth would keep him cozy in bed for those late mornings. Ha, ha. A cricket for Paul. No explanation needed. And a footless (laughs) bald eagle for you, i.e. footless freedom. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, that was Dan recalling the time I, I got Rob a spirit with a freedom that had no feet. <laughs> For Kujo, he might need something devious with ulterior motives. Since I'm convinced he's affiliated with extensive enterprises, a snake might be suitable. Perhaps a ball python. <laughs> they just appear to be on the up and up and don't possess any venom. However, can mess you up when you least expect it in your sleep when placed in a HVAC duct. Ha ha, just my picks. I'd be curious to learn what Cujo feels would be appropriate. It would be great if he could drop some knowledge on us. Uh, what do you think of your animal companions, boys? Oh, I, I'm, I'm honored that somebody would spend time. Uh, cheers, brother. Are you familiar with the ball python? 
he's not far off with me. No, I, I'm, I am reptile. Uh, I have a bearded dragon, and no, no, no BS. Like if I'm at home, I'll just throw him on my shoulder, and he'll kind of run around from shoulder to shoulder while I'm doing work. Um, so at least on my action figure, or I'm sorry, the action figure that uh, Jim made, my little bearded dragon has a radio camera. So like I'll throw a blueberry into a room full of enemies. And the bearded dragon runs in there and gives me a layout of the room, so it has like a little satellite cam. But uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, as far as you guys, I'll have to chew on that one. But since since he sent that, I'm I'm gonna have to take a look at him or or, or chat up the uh, Joe Bird guys and, and see what kind of animal companion he needs. I'll definitely point you in his direction, Cooch. Awesome. But uh, unless anyone else would like to comment on their, their assigned animals, I couldn't be more thrilled with being uh, an eagle. That sounds kick-ass. And since I've always gravitated more towards G.I. Joe than Cobra, makes perfect sense for me. Paul, you're a cricket? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why. Is it just because I jump a lot? Your animal companion is a cricket. Oh, 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 like a, that. A like, oh, Oh, okay. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah, that actually, that's... Okay, that's cool. That's actually very cool. <laughs> yes, now I can go to the toy shop and go and buy one of those, you know, those, like... You know those packets of, like, plastic animals and there's always, like, a sheep, like, in, like, a horse's ass or something? <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. And I see that shit. <laughs> <laughs> this one is, like, a sheep. Like, 69ing, like, a horse or something. <laughs> Yeah, because their, their legs are kind of jammed together. I get you. I get you. <laughs> anyway, there's insect versions. Maybe I should go and find one with a cool cricket. Prime it up and just and then just paint it up and like put it next to like Outback or something just for now, you know. <laughs> no, you'll like... pop it on your shoulder, dude. That's my, my animal yeah. companion right there. Bam. There you go. Mm. Guys, I actually think Dan has raised a very cool or brought up a very cool idea. I think we need to do some kind of crazy, wacky, wild animal companion uh, YouTube episode or something, uh, YouTube video. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. I, I, I've got some ideas. But anyway, I digress. Wasn't there some fan art? Oh, it's terrific, man. They take, like, all the really popular, famous animal companions and strap, like, lasers and guns to them. Uh I mean, does this ring any bells? There's like Norgahide's boar, and obviously Spirits is there, Junkyard is there, Law uh, Order's there. Uh, gosh, uh, I don't know if there's a manta ray. Probably not. It's in retro style, so it must be uh, must be old Marvel or something. Uh, I don't know, man. I it might see be it. reproduction retro, and I think I shared it to you specifically, Cooge, because I was like, hey, man, check this out. Someone took your idea and ran with it. Sort of... Animal Companion Force. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but yes, absolutely, it needs to be done. These fantasy fantasy animal companions must be unveiled. I still contend that when they make your three-pack, the Joburg three-pack, because that needs to get made, that you guys should have Harambe as your animal companion. Dude, that, that, thing, would move. that thing would jump off a of shelves into people's bags. No, they wouldn't steal it, that's not what I'm saying, but... Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it's 69ing Paul in the package. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. It's cradling Paul, you know. <laughs> All right, enough about animals. Let's talk about guardsmen. 
Our definitive sculpt section deals with something that uh, gets a new veneer in Operation Dragonfire, and that's the Crimson God. Not only do we have a named Crimson God character in that show, but he actually winds up becoming a deep cover operative on the Joe team. So what better opportunity than to talk about Cobra's elite trooper, the Crimson God. Anyone want to fire off the opening salvo with which version of the Crimson God is in fact the definitive? Or is there some interesting trivia we can talk about? There's an alternate reality where I lose my mind for a couple minutes, but I'll kick off the proceedings. I, I, it's pretty straightforward on this one. I mean, there are some cool Crimson Guard wrinkles. I'm, I'm sure everybody can agree that the uh, Nocturnal or Crimson Shadow Guard, there's a place for him. I mean, it's a reach, but you could do something with him. And I do like it when they take their helmets off and all that. As do I. To be honest, Kooj, I like a Crimson Guardsman in uniform, and then to be able to unveil their, their faces. I've never been mm -hmm. a fan of, like, Crimson Guardsmen being the plainclothes troopers of Cobra. I don't know, man. Well, That's a uniform that needs to be worn, or not. Uh, I, it's always got a missed opportunity when we see Crimson Guardsmen doing combats, but, like, plain clothed. I don't know, I never liked that. I think you kind of need the duality of both that kind of blonde-headed white dude as well as, as the Crimson uh, uniform. Because Hama was trying to make two points with one character. Now, I, I could step into the deep end for a second, and so I shall. The Crimson Guard is, is you know, it's in the name. Uh, you could just say Red Shield, and that starts with his backpack, which looks like a shield and has rivets in it. And, and if you're in Germany, which I think we got some Joe Burgers in Germany, you probably know that Red Guard spells Rothschild. And uh, I, I don't think that's a reach. Hama doesn't reach. So, I mean, like, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go to the file card art because that's the most interesting part of the conversation for me, I guess. I mean, this whole this whole piece of artwork might drive you mad, so don't look at it too long. But, like, you know when you're looking at a playing card, a face card, and it's inverted? You know, somebody's holding a sword, and, and, and it's going both ways or whatever? Uh, you got that here. It's, it's a contradiction in design. And, and you can tell because the pinky is the top finger. Um, and, and, and honestly, the, the conflictions continue. The, the boots are wrong. I, mean, I don't think you can argue against that. It doesn't seem like a mistake. It, like... When you when you mention it, you know you mentioned it before when we had a conversation, sort of like off the cuff about it once upon a time, and it got me uh, looking at that that toy a bit more. And I'm like, how did that get through the art department? How is how is that kind of mistake not picked up by sort of a, 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 an executive chain of decision makers? You know, so 
I suspect that maybe there is a little bit of skullduggery involved in its design, you know, to try and, you know, put across that there's something, that there's something off, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, you know, the 80s were a magical time, and I'm sure a lot of cocaine was flying around all over the place, um, <laughs> and maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe they just had one of those days where they were like, inverted hands, and all of that stuff, let's see if we can, like, mess with kids' minds or something, I don't know, or maybe it was just like, okay, well, maybe, we, let's see if we can get away with it, you know, you you just don't know B- before, sometimes. And- before you, you start, you know, uh, just defaulting towards people uh, just getting loose, I mean, don't, don't you know, don't forget that even on, like, the Sumbo cartoon, they had PhDs from, from Ivy Leagues looking over those scripts, I mean that that's in the credits. So, I mean, when I'm looking at the Crimson Guardman and and Jim, hold on tight, buddy. Here we go. This guy's 33. This is a figure of 33. Um, I mentioned that name earlier. I'm not going to mention it in, again. But at least in the artwork, you can see a diamond on the Crimson Guard's shoulder. In actual, it's actually a wreath framed around a an inverted triangle which is the feminine triangle, if you're asking. A diamond in Gematria is 33. There's threes all over this character, from the gun clip to the sequence of dots adjacent. So uh, you can say that, you know, Cujo, a.k.a. the Reacher, but uh, there's triangles on his lapel, uh, and there's a, you know, there's threes all over. So I love this character after further examination. I got to go V1. I could go on. You guys know I could, but... It's in the design. Uh, tip of the cap to Hama. What do you got? I'm going to second you, man. V1 all the way, and I'll keep it brief. Uh, for me, V1 will always win on two points. And until latter versions can can correct this, uh, I'm always going to default to V1. The proportions of the head in later versions, that, they, they, they monkey the design up. I mean, it just... The, the version to beat in the modern era is clearly version 16 because it's multi-purpose. You know, it can go tactical, it can go traditional. It's got sword, it's got vest, it's got the the, the, the sticker sheet, which gives it a, a customizability, which is really cool. Nice inclusion, th- very thoughtful um, and a great way to move more toys, I suppose. But the face is weird. The eyes are set too low on the helmet, the, the visor, uh, which gives him this long forehead. Mm. Similarly, the 25th anniversary version uh, also messes up the head slightly. It's it's too rounded. The, the sort of the cowling around the black faceplate mm. is uh, weird and large and uh, just not quite right. Also, the mid-torso articulation on modern era figures can look good, can look unobtrusive, but on a double-breasted jacket, it's always going to look ugly. So the simplicity of the O-ring is the favorable choice when you've got such an immaculate outfit. The second point that V1 will always win on is that rifle. You can't beat that rifle. That is the Crimson Guardsman rifle. Uh, it's It saddens me that his latest, greatest Pursuit of Cobra version, which I alluded to earlier, doesn't come with that rifle. It's like, how can you expect mm. to win if you don't have the signature gun? The gun that even made the translation into the animated series. You know, they never 
animated Kalashnikovs and Dragonovs for the Cobra Trooper and Officer, but they made damn sure that they animated the Crimson Guardsman gun, even down to its serrated mm. bayonet, which is a great detail. It's a very elegant gun. I think, for my money, that is the best sculpted, most interesting, most appealing rifle in the vintage G.I. Joe run. Oh, my God. Yep. Okay, I, I love the Crimson Guard. I got actual history with the toy, which is cool, uh, meaning that I, I got to play with it as a kid. My buddy Dave had it. Had, might, might still have it. I don't know. It's always been a very striking figure, and that's always been a toy that I've really enjoyed. In fact, it's it's one of my faves. It's it's sadly a vintage toy that I don't own because purely because they they're actually quite difficult to find online. I think a, a lot of troop builders, or there are a lot of troop builders out there, and they don't um like you know like when they see these online, they've probably got all kinds of saved searches and they snipe these things like crazy because it is just not a toy that you find easily. Or should I say, it is not a a a, a vintage GI Joe toy that I've been able to to find easily. But in saying that, it is a beautiful figure. <sighs> you know, with me, I've always got like a runner-up kind of thing, and uh, I would say version one is the definitive sculpt. Although, if we're only talking three three quarter inch figures, that would be the way to go. One of the things that Steve mentioned that I don't really agree with, but I can. I agree with what he's saying, but it's just not a feeling that I have about the figure or something about the toy that I like very much, rather, is that I don't like the Crimson Guard being tactical. I like him being very ceremonial. And I think part of the appeal of the Crimson Guard as a character is that it's got a very Gestapo-esque quality to it. It's a, it's a, it's a character that doesn't just wear a normal uniform. It's got an, a uniform that is sort of a high rank, but not really within the ranks of the the of the normal military. Uh, the Crimson Guardsmen, I believe, should be clad in civilian clothing because that's kind of what made the, the Gestapo quite dangerous as well. Is that they could insinuate themselves into the local pub and hairdresser and you know barber shop, what have you, and could actually use their eyes and ears on the ground to root out. Well, the Jews, because they were, you know, that's one of their main purposes was to to find the Jews. And now you've got the Crimson Guard, which are kind of the equivalent of that. And I think that's what makes the Crimson Guard quite horrifying. And that aesthetic is assisted quite heavily by version one and by the sideshow version of the of the figurine. Um, and even to a degree, the Crimson Guard uh, Immortal also has that quality to it. But the modern era, the tactical look for me is just off. It's not. These are not guys that run around, you know, without going into it too much more. V1 is Paul's favorite uh, Crimson Guard and actually one of Paul's favorite Cobra Troopers, period. You say they gave you a Gestapo feel, but you've also mm. said that about the Iron Grenadier. So when they showed yes. up on the scene, what, what, where did this, where did your Crimson Guard default to? And by you the see, way, two yeah. triangle belts on the Crimson Guard. Come on. Oh, now. yeah? <laughs> They're layered. They're layered. It's ridiculous. All right. Well, the Crimson Guard are Cobra Commanders, Gestapo, and the Iron Grenadiers are Destros. Although the Iron Grenadiers are a little different. Uh, no, are they? Because with the Crimson Guards, I get a more nefarious feeling from them. Like, they're actually kind of evil. I mean, the fact that they're manufactured in, in the sense that 
these are people that are essentially brought into a cult. Okay, it's not like Destro's guys, which are trained and have something a system that they believe in. It's like it's it's a bunch of guys that have joined. They've made it to the higher echelons of this um, society or this um, structure of the system, and they have gone through like crazy ass rituals and all kinds of stuff. So they are actually quite evil and and manipulative and you know almost to a degree brainwashed into doing their jobs. And, you know, you can see this with, you know, the Fred clones and how that all is. Because they're not really clones. It's just people that have had their faces reconstructed surgically, you know. Whereas the links that they're prepared to go to do suggest that they are the biggest true believers, the absolute fanatics, the fanatics, the total inner circle of Cobra. Uh, and there's a line in the file card that gives you that impression more than anything else, and that's uh, that they undergo a initiation ceremony too hideous for description. One can only imagine what that must mean. I mean, some form of mutilation, perhaps, that you bear the mark of the, the Crimson God if you've had your pinky toe severed or something like that. I mean, like... Something subtle, but something undeniable as a, a show of faith that you are taking that plunge. And what yeah, is done can never be undone. You will be a crimson guardsman until you are tossed into your casket. There you go. And I think the Iron Grenadiers are a lot more noble than that. You know, they work for noble Destro. <laughs> Even though Destro himself, I mean, he's a war profiteer, but... Uh, oh, I know what the <laughs> distinction is. The Iron Grenadiers are all about profits. The mm. Crimson Guardsman file card doesn't allude to the fact that they are uh, being showered with glittering prizes. It just reiterates their level of education, the fact that they're in peak physical condition, the fact that they are sent into society as Cobra's moles. But it doesn't say that that their motivation is money. Whereas mm. with the Iron Grenadiers, they or once again, telephone solicitors and accountants and people that deal with money and transactions uh, and their their incentive for being professional soldiers in Destro's army is a cut of the profits. It's a mercenary army. They are they're, they're working on commission. What say you, Bob? I think probably the first version that I ever encountered was version seven. We came out in two thousand and five. And it's 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 true. Like over the years they'd really struggled to kind of reproduce the look of the helmet, especially for the new newer versions, it's weird. They never, they could never get it right. Either it looked like, like, a, like a, the snout of a dog, <laughs> or it looked very angular, like some sort of weird tortoise shell thing with a hood on it. But I, I, I like how formal version seven looks. I mean, he's got like a proper jacket on. And the kind of cool flared, I don't know, collar type thing going on, and sculpted uh, gun on his hip. It's 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 actually it's it's quite a cool version. But then you compare it to the original, and I mean that gun's pretty cool. But I see they also did package a very similar gun, almost identical gun, with a version nine of the Crimson Guard, which came out in 2008, mm-hmm. which also looks pretty awesome. And the figure isn't too bad either. Uh, for me, it just loses points on um, the mid-torso articulation. That's modern Joe. 
you know. Yes. And on characters which uh, ha- have um, web gear or uh, some kind of jacket over that, it's more concealed and, and, and works better. But in such a immaculate red double-breasted jacket... Yeah, man, I gotta go classic construction, particularly when we, when you think about definitive. But are you saying that a DTC new sculpt era figurine is your definitive Crimson Guardsman, Rob? That's an upset. DTC? Direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. All right, no, sorry, I was I was trying to get to my point. Anyway, so yeah, I think the first version is probably still still the best one. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a unanimous decision by G.I. Joeberg that, in fact, you can't take it away from V1. V1 CG for the win. Well, nobody had the balls to bring up Python Crimson. <laughs> oh, a contradiction in terms. <laughs> well, what, what, was the thought, what was the thought process there? Like, find the minute most inoffensive version of Grey we have? <laughs> like, I don't understand that. I actually just think that Hasbro ran out of troop builders. Like, they couldn't think of a troop builder to... Uh, I, I mean, if you're directly relating it to the Crimson God. I think that they, they couldn't find another troop builder. You know, they had the Cobra Trooper in there. They had a Cobra yeah. Viper. And then who, they had to have somebody else. And Who was in control of the damn swatches? Like, like on Copperhead, his, his underpants are yellow. And he drives a boat. <laughs> I mean, like this guy's got a yellow shirt on. Uh, anyway, I'm not, I don't want to. I don't want to get into it. I can very safely say that there is a lot of psychology that goes into color selection and what appeals to kids. I can, with some certainty, say that the Python Patrol was definitely engineered to capture the attention of children, and I think it definitely worked to a large degree. I wasn't trying to like sandbag it, but it did need a mention. Absolutely. Mm. Oh, definitely. And to cap it off on your point, Paul, I think the response that I've gotten primarily from people that I've spoken to uh, through various G.I. Joe communities, that the repaints are always going to be inferior, but they came at a time where you just couldn't get Crimson Guardsmen anymore and you couldn't get Cobra Troopers and Cobra Officers anymore. So this was your second chance. And, hey, mm. it might have been lame coloring, but at least you're getting these army builders again it was basically a wave of army builders and that's always going to be a smart bomb especially when it's the second time around you're like oh damn it i really missed this stuff i need to get it back so yes i suppose a lot of people may do with um yellow underpants copperhead <laughs> as a result Mm-mm. guys i think it's time we spoke a little bit about deke animation not animated dicks <laughs> Let's do it. We're going to do it. We are going to take the plunge into Deke, starting with the, the, the soft option. Operation Dragonfire was a pretty decent segue. It first aired in 1989 and was written by Doug Booth, who was a writer on the Sunbow animation, albeit for just one episode, but he was an absolute prolific writer at the time. Uh, the, the guy's list of credits, yeah, it, it does go on longer than I'd care to mention. If you're interested, check him out on IMDb. So it is a departure from the Friedman stable of miniseries, and you get that feeling almost immediately. Whereas Friedman's stories always seem to f- emulate the same template of 
how do we work in exotic locations? Well, let's have a MacGuffin that gets subdivided into smaller MacGuffins and becomes scattered across the globe. I mean, we see the same plot device in the three initial miniseries, almost verbatim. Uh, there's a sort of a, a frozen battleground and an aquatic battleground and a jungle battleground. Uh, so this, this the device gets used quite often. Uh, but Doug Booth, being a different writer, gave us a different approach. Well, yeah, he, he decided not to go for um, something that breaks into five different pieces and gets scattered all over the world, uh, for starters. Um, he, and and he, he went for something a little more subtle, something a bit mm. more tame. So subtle and so tame, in fact, that I must say the, the standout element to Operation Dragonfire is the central relationship between two Crimson Guardsmen. Who am I referring to? Well, an unnamed Cobra operative who is only ever referred to by his uh, sort of Cobra division or, or uniformed division. Uh, he, he's introduced to us as an undercover Crimson Guardsman. And another Crimson Guardsman commander, guy by the name of Leonard Michaels, a.k.a. Scoop. We got any Scoop fans in the building? <laughs> We certainly do. Robbie, Bueller. you got to tell us, man. As a fan of Scoop, what did you think of his introduction and the way he was handled in this miniseries? Well, I mean, the thing with Scoop, at least the way that I liked him, was that he was very much a blank slate. Um, you know, he was the guy who filmed stuff. And I think I appreciated that about him most of all, because I came at him from the file cards. So I kind of appreciated that they recognized he was a blank slate as well. And... They created a very compelling character. It almost kind of felt like they were trying to pull a shipwreck on him, at least, you know, like cartoon-wise, where, like, shipwreck was introduced and he was fleshed out quite a bit and introduced into the G.I. Joe team. And I, I think they did a pretty good job. I mean, he's one of the rare characters who actually seems to have more going on for him, or at least about him, than just, I'm a soldier and I'm fighting Cobra. <laughs> What was your response to discovering that he was not just a war correspondent member of the G.I. Joe team, sort of journalistic di division, but in fact a Cobra agent, a Crimson Guardsman? Before we, before we get to there, which is a formidable question, did you guys find the, the kind of expositional writing right up front heavy-handed, or are you like, yeah, we may as well get you know these, these characters out of the way, like the character... Uh, portrayals i guess the writing is clunky you're absolutely right i don't know I, i'm on the fence about it i thought the it was colors are garish it just kind of you know you're just like okay i thought it was kind of cool that that they at least tried to play on one of what i feel is gi joe's uh, gi joe's strengths i'm sure many can agree that the file cards are one of the real strengths of gi joe and you know, that they try to actually play on them being characters, like being actual people. I'm not saying that, that the Joes in Sunbow are are not fully fleshed out characters, but then at the same time, I am saying that. Because they are very much caricatures of their file card versions. And in some cases, not even that. Um, in some cases, they, they're very far removed from their, their file card, how the file card represented them. So, although Deke may not have uh, followed the file card's 
to the T, at least not in in in, uh, in Operation Dragonfire. At least um, there was an effort made to try and create uh, sort of human characters. You know, like characters that have conflict of allegiance and putting eyes on different sides of the battlefield as opposed to red lasers versus blue lasers, if that makes sense. Or if I make sense. <laughs> so. I appreciate the fact that we have obviously the, the top tier Cobras being dealt with right up front, but we also are seeing a view from the bottom. We have named Cobra lackeys, for lack of a better word, two members of the, the Crimson Guard, and they are, for all intents and purposes, the central relationship of this piece. That said, we do get to see some rather interesting developments in the Cobra hierarchy. What do you guys make of Destro snubbing the Baroness in favor of Zorana? Uh, Very unexpected. It doesn't match that song at all, you know, when they're all playing clarinets and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can hear it now. It's not mentioned in there. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, sometimes you, you go through a slutty phase, you know, you, I mean, not you, you, you don't become a slut, but you kind of go through a phase where, you know, you kind of, I don't know. Well, where you kind you of have fi- to own it if you're calling somebody else it. It is a contradiction. I mean, black doesn't go with pink, does it? It totally does. <laughs> but some, no, no, no. Actually, uh, Kujo, you bring up the, the best point there. Sometimes shiny black and shiny pink need to go together. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes I don't like that, but go on. Sometimes you can't always match the curtains to the couch. Sometimes you just got to throw in a Sex Pistols poster in the middle of the li- living room and just deal with that, you know, for a phase in your life. Maybe Destro's hitting his his midlife crisis or something. <laughs> and he's and he, <laughs> and Guys, he's into I think Aussie it's time to actor. start a Kickstarter for Paul's therapy. <laughs> 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 it seems like a very realistic uh, scenario being played out in rather light, cartoony terms. I mean, Destro's basically trading in his longtime paramour for this new floozy. He is ageist, uh, clearly. I mean, they made no bones about the fact that he's ditching Baroness because she's not as young as she used to be. So sexist and, and ageist. And then he did show off in his shiny new ride. So the I, I think he might back. be onto something. Yeah. Mm. yeah, though it seems like they've collapsed the Iron Grenadiers idea pretty quickly. 1989 marked the second year of Je- Destro's Iron Grenadiers, so we got a slew of, of new vehicles and new troops, the Annihilators, the Targats. Uh, on the vehicle front, we got the Razorback, we got Darklon's Evader, which has the uh, distinction of coming with Darklon. <laughs> Love him or hate him. <laughs> and was that it? Yeah, I think that's it. So what do you guys think of the new vehicle? What do you guys think of the new vehicles? I mean, this is my, my domain, but I'll, I'll open that to you fellas first. This was a clean break from the Sunbow era. So we've got an entire new roster of vehicles and equipment showcased. What do you think of the new looks? What do you think of the new toys? I love seeing the Raider, and I love seeing the Razorback in that show. The Razorback itself is a great toy, and I really do enjoy it. And I do enjoy seeing a vehicle that I've recently fallen in love with, 
which is, and I keep making a mistake with the stand name, the Equalizer. Correct, Mondo. The Equalizer is very cool. I really do like the Equalizer. It, it's something that uh, I've grown quite fond of, and recently seeing it in the Deke series has uh, endeared me to it a little bit more. And I've always liked the actual Razorback. Destro's vehicles have always been cool to me, um, even if some of them are completely stupid. But, yeah, the Razorback is fantastic. The Dominator, I believe, has a bad rap, and it's completely deserved. Apparently that is a really cheap, crappy vehicle. The Dominator never made Destro laugh that hard. <laughs> what? What do you mean by that, Cooch? What, when he crushes uh, Sergeant Slaughter using his Razorback? Yeah, that's like the the greatest moment in episode one is that laughter after he finally <laughs> kicks some dirt in Sarge's eye. He's like, long oh. overdue, bitch. Nice. <laughs> I never really thought that the Razorbacks feature would be employed like that. Uh, I don't own the toy. I've always thought that it kind of raises its back, hence the name, so that the ball turrets would sort of sit a little bit higher. That seems to be the gimmick with Destro's tanks. They tend to rise and make themselves a bigger target. Anyway, but to well, be like able to... It's like a pimp to... hand. It's like a pimp <laughs> hand, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Can the toy do that? I wonder. I mean, I've, I've never owned one. I've always fawned over it. Uh, when I was a child, I had the European catalog from 1990, which had the Razorback and the Raider sort of, you know, they were the kind of the, the, the opposite um, sides to the same coin. Uh, so they were both coveted, coveted toys. I wanted both of them so I could emulate the tank battle that uh, we get in day one of Operation Dragonfire. But damn it, I never got them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, can the toy rise up like that and ride on its back wheels? I wonder. I really enjoy the cockpit shot we have over Serpentor's shoulder while they're at the gates to the monastery. After the landward tank battle, Serpento sets his Fang 2 down in front of the gates. Destro's got his Razorback parked in front of the Fang, and they're communicating via this sort of video screens. So we see a shot of Destro over the shoulder of Serpento on Serpento's vid screen, but we also see Destro in the background, in the bubble canopy of his Razorback, talking into his camera. And I thought that was a great, like, bit of composition. Really, really great idea to have Destro both on the screen and being observed in the background talking. Well, they, they flex like on Joe animation sometimes. I mean, they, they break out some great moments. That that moment stands out for me as well. I mean, the fact that you can even see Destro's lips moving when he's talking. Um, if you look, his lips are actually moving. Like... It's not like they've just got him like in the background. He's like actually moving. <laughs> it's and it's and it kind of corresponds to what we're seeing in the cockpit. I, I think it's I think it's a magical shot and it it adds to a theory I have about the Deke um, Dragonfire series, which leads to why it is so uh, should I say juxtapositioned or very different to the rest of the series, like. Operation Dragonfire and the rest of the Deke series almost seem like two different cartoons. But I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, possibly. I mean, we could talk relationships with good guys, but why? I mean, the the only relationship we haven't spoken on is Serpentor and Cobra Commander. You know, he does mock him, but he did give him some food, which was, that was, that was some decent animation. <laughs> I think it's quite remarkable that Serpentor 
bothered to keep that snake in the first place. Uh, so in the kind of the ashes of Cobra Law, Serpentor managed to find his former, I don't know, commander, field commander, the founder of Cobra. He was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you around, Dad. And then eventually, I'm gonna <laughs> skin you and make you part of my uniform. <laughs> I, I, I think. Um... I, I've got two theories about that. I think the first very straightforward logical theory is that uh, Serpentor knows that Cobra Commander is somehow still sentient in the in the snake body, and has put him in the in the in that exact place so that he can gloat. So he can go, look at you, look how small you are, look how big I am. Uh, you're an idiot, Cobra Commander. Look what, what I can do to Cobra without you. He probably bangs like Cobra babes in front of Cobra Commander, you know, just to like <laughs> rub it in his face. Um, <laughs> my second theory, which is a little bit more far-fetched, but I suppose could also have some credence, is Serpentor does pull snakes out of his shoulders and throw them at people, which to me suggests that Serpentor has got some kind of quote-unquote psychic connection to snakes, as in, you know, there, there must be some kind of mind control or some kind of uh, ability. You know, let's just put it this way. Let's just say Serpento is a Slytherin with a uh, parcel tongue. You know what I mean? So maybe, um, maybe <laughs> Cobra Commander... demographic up. Yeah, well... It's not my demographic, bro. I love Harry Potter. Go away. And some of us I are think... in relationships, man. <laughs> um, and I think Cobra Commander is somehow drawn uh, to Serpento just because of that. I don't think it's a case of, you know, like, like Cobra Commander likes him. But, like I said, it's a far-out crazy theory, and I wanted to voice it here. <laughs> no, <laughs> like that. I, I like that. In, in, I, it's, I mean, it's a great point, but also it, it kind of made me think about, since we're around animation, honestly, the most intrigue about Serpentor are those snakes they got to keep those snakes moving while he's talking. If they don't animate those, he's way less interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, number. they, they, they <laughs> nixed the, the moving snakes, but uh, they gave him some dark locks for some reason. That's now on the character <laughs> sheet. It is indeed. Guys, uh, do any of you guys own the modern era version of the printer? No. No, not at all. It kind of surprised me, but then was a sobering sort of sensical design choice when I discovered that he's bald. <laughs> and it actually makes <laughs> a lot of sense that he's bald. It, it really does. <laughs> it made me immediately think of Arnold Foslu in uh, The Mummy. <laughs> um, as uh, I, I can't think of his name. It's uh, Umshama Flip Flap, whatever his name is. Imhotep? Imhotep, thank Don't you. Don't ask me why I somehow conjured that from my, my recollection. Flip flop a gym jack. Yeah, you did it. There we go. Um, yeah, it, it, it's quite jarring to see the hair, uh, actually. It's, it, it seems wrong, but it's weird. Oh, it shouldn't seem wrong because... <laughs> you need to rewatch the, 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 the only episode of the Sunbow cartoon that Doug Booth penned called My Favorite Things, where he's like... Like, every time he touches one of his old artifacts, he sprouts a different beard. It's spectacular. That guy has, like, hair on demand. Ah, oh, what I could do with hair on demand. Speaking of definitives, uh, what's the definitive look on Serpentor's head, then, without the helmet? Is it bald? Like, 
I think it's bald for me because the Cobra G.I. Joe series written by Costas and uh, Gage. Remember, he uh, when he was the cult leader, he had he had a he had a cue ball too. Maybe that's because a little bit of Mindbender's DNA got in there somehow. Oh, yeah. Maybe Mindbender was like, yeah, making the ultimate, ultimate science project. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, <laughs> shit, that happened again. This always happens. Nobody saw it. <laughs> what do you say, Rob? Should he be bald or should he have, like, flowing He-Man locks? Like the 80s rock god that he was always meant to be. Bald? But, but an interesting... Well, it was something I started thinking about was uh, Scoop's Crimson Guard friend. We don't actually get to see his real face. No. Um, you know, at some point he removes, or at least in the first episode, um, he removes his, you know, the mask he's wearing and he puts on his helmet. If Scoop is also Crimson Guardsman, is this his real face? Is he the face of one of the lines of Crimson Guards people? <laughs> oh no, that is actually quite a cool idea. I like that. So uh, something tells me the the cosmetic surgery angle of the Crimson Guardsman was a comic book thing. I don't know uh, if we got much of that uh, as a theme with the cartoon. Crimson okay. Guardsmen, their, their identities were secretive, but I don't think they all possessed um, the same series of face. I don't think they got adapted uh, to to look uh, uniform. I would be willing to argue that there's there's not enough evidence in the cartoon to definitively argue any which way. So I think uh, for myself, I'm going to take that for myself and kind of just believe that the Crimson Gods are still a series and that somehow they, they still maintain that in the show and that, uh, crim- that there's a line of Crimson Gods out there that look like Scoop and I really like that idea. Outstanding. All of a sudden, one can like head swap your Crimson Guardsman with Scoop's head, and bam, you've got an unmasked Crimson God. Yeah. Mm, yeah, but universities give away doctorates. I think Scoop maybe got pushed to the front of the line, went to the Crimson Guard because of his media privileges. That could oh, be, so you're saying his cover's blown. His face is too famous. Well, they brought him in on a lie. So they could say, this guy's got a certain, uh, certain platform. Let's but, let's get him involved. Oh, that's or, right. Or they, yeah, they did. No, because uh, Leonard Michaels, uh, as far as I know, uh, was modeled after a famous TV journalist, a real life TV journalist. Is it Mike Leonard? It could be. But now you know, Mike. That means that it's all meta. Mike Leonard's a Crimson God. <gasps> <laughs> Does anyone have any other uh, points they'd like to raise about Operation Dragonfire Day One, or should we talk about our highs and lows? Does anybody care that you see so many cool uh, Cobra troop builders in the episode? Like, well, eighty-nine like, was the that... year for expanding Cobra's armies, I guess, forces. I, yeah. I I'm actually going to make that uh, my high and low point. No, that'd be greedy. Oh. <laughs> Oopsie. Uh, what were you going to say on the point, Paul? I just really love seeing. Uh, the targets for like less than a second and night vipers like i thought that was really cool actually and a dreadnought that i quite dig because i think it's a really cool toy is nogaha not a dreadnought uh and and he's he's portrayed typically like I, he's I think, not a dreadnought what more no, evidence he, do you need than his appearance in this episode 
Well, I mean, yeah, but like right he now, he sides that's the with Baroness over Zorana. Norgard is not being. He, I mean, the only thing that's positing him as a dreadnought at this point is the fact that he's got an exotic accent. He doesn't yes. look like a dreadnought. Well, he looks like something. He kind of looks like a dreadnought. <laughs> Why? Because he's got facial hair. No, man, it's that sexy, um, fluffy neck thing he gets to wear with the <laughs> with the spots on it. Well, and, uh, he's not very professional. Yeah, he's also he he doesn't come across as professional. He he's like he's like Muldoon from Jurassic Park. He's just got that vibe to him, you know. <laughs> he's just a complete just outlier in the Cobra ranks. So they lumped him in with the Dreadnoks because like that's where all the sort of the the odd bods go, uh, unless they're like Crocmaster, Raptor, or Big Boa. But I I don't know, man. I've never thought of Norgahide as a comfortable fit in the Dreadnoks. You know, well, for me, had- it's just cool to see him. If Hasbro had their thinking caps on, this is when they could have been developing your continent. I mean, they had the October Guard. Nagahide is a natural fit for some kind of Sahara badass, isn't he? I mean, where where do where do boars get found? Yeah, we got a fair number of boars in 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 Africa, big time, bro. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see where that comes from. Fairness, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. If if I if I can rip, what's his name? Booth. I, I forget at this moment. Doug Booth, yeah. If I, I'll just I'll just let this be my highs and lows right here, and they'll both be Doug Booth. He appears from the outside looking in to be somebody at least who who talked to Friedman along the way. I, I believe he helped produce a couple of those episodes from the Sumbo. He does have commentary. He does have things to say. He is sneaky. Well, my dad was in the Navy. You know, they say join the Navy, see the world. So he's he's there. But the low point is. I don't see Baroness and Nagahide. I don't see it. She's refined deadliness, and and he's he's got bo problems. Like that to <laughs> me is bad scripting. I don't, I don't like it. Bad scripting, hmm. perhaps um, bad voice performance as well. Everything's yeah. kind of uh, played off a little bit too lightly, whereas these things should have real impact. Baroness being snubbed for Zorana, it forms comedy almost. It just doesn't seem like there's the level of intensity and adult responses to adult situations. <laughs> Can't believe I used that term. Which is something that was a hallmark of Sunbow. And we seem to see a kind of a lampooning of these characters, which is something that, that like, in the Sunbow era, it was very important that all the characters behaved like adults. Nothing was ever cartoonified, at least in terms of the interpersonal uh, interactions between the actors portraying these characters. And mm. I think that's going to be my, my low point, is that it's, it's, it's the start of the Mickey Mousing of G.I. Joe. You know, it, it always was a kid's cartoon, but at least in the Sunbow era, the characters felt like real people. There was a, a genuine direction Perhaps by good old Wally Burr, the voice director on a lot of the Sunbow stuff, to push it into that very adult, very realistic, very believable, tangible realm. And it doesn't help that we've got kind of a, I hate to say it, but a budget team behind some of the voices. I was not Mm. enthralled by, by rock and roll because he sounds a bit too like pop instead of grunge rock. That's the analogy I'm going to draw. Mr. Michelangelo. Yeah, exactly. 
he should have a bit more grit. I mean, he was he's one of the OG 13 for crying out loud. I wish they would pay mm. homage to that and age him slightly instead of just make him a mm. punk kid who happens to have this big blonde beard. That's a non secretary if I ever saw one. If he's got this big grizzled beard, he should be a big grizzled dude. And they don't show him using his Gatling guns. Urgh, damn it. But the biggest offender of the voice acting department is Destro. While this replacement does an adequate job, he doesn't have the gravel in the chambers that we got with the previous voice actor. Which is That is true. Mm. He he lacks the what's a good word? He lacks the gravitas. <laughs> Whatever. And and to, to second to second your point, Paul, I know you enjoyed seeing Targats and Night Vipers, but I think they were the weakest representations on screen. I mean, they were both just used as either drivers of vehicles or standard infantry when all it would really take was like a few streaks through the air in one of the wides, like a long shot of the monastery. If we saw like these kind of almost comet-like like uh, apparitions, uh, well not apparitions, comet-like effects on the horizon, that would explain their arrival. It would have been a quick mm. and easy little animation ad. But Mr. Opportunity, man, I do not enjoy seeing targets just being deployed like ground troops. No, man, these are trans-atmospheric global assault troopers. Did I get it right? I believe you did. <laughs> Speaking of getting things right, uh, since you mentioned a grizzled uh, rock and roll, uh, you know who did that? Our good friend over at the Crown Jewels, right in your face, Sitterson. But instead of... Uh, he did do like an old-school rock and roll style. But of course, instead of a machine gun, he's now carrying like some sort of alien plasma cannon. So, right. you know, give Not it even a shot. Take it away. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I then I'm glad they didn't do that to rock and roll in this uh, this this cartoon. But they didn't give him any goddamn gun. I mean, like, come on, he's rock and roll. He's the heavy machine gunner. He should not be like doing a dive roll over laser bolts. He should be laying down the pain with his twin. Double Gatling guns. I mean, he must go through ammunition like in two seconds flat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, they did get the Frag Vipers right. And that causes me to, to jump and scream and shout in glee. The fact that you seeing, you're seeing Frag Vipers dispense uh, fragmentation grenades using their baskets. That's cool. Mm. That's badass. Just in case a child faced with this toy was suddenly like confused as to what his function is with that thing is it a climbing claw is it some kind of melee weapon uh no in fact it is used to toss the grenades there you go you saw it on a cartoon yeah <laughs> just in case his design wasn't obvious and uh, i'm not saying it is the most obvious thing but I used to think that that was completely absurd that whole idea when i was a kid i used to think that it can't be that but that seems to make the most sense. So It's just an awkward feature to play out. Because, mm. you know, his arm obviously isn't spring-loaded or anything like that. So you put a grenade in there and you, you kind of flip his arm up and it, it might just flop out of the basket. But that's about as far as it gets. It's like, has anyone ever gotten any decent range out of their Frag Vipers grenade? God, it was too long ago for me to even remember. I know that I lost them all <laughs> in like two seconds flat. <laughs> yeah, that's the other problem, isn't it? Mm. 
That's a beautiful uh, euphemism. So coming back to highs and lows, like the definitive oh, highs and lows. My high point then uh, is the reveal that Scoop is in fact a Crimson Guardsman, and he's playing on the other side. Uh, that's a spectacular, like what? What? I mean, thinking back to when that moment happened, when I watched it for the first time, I think I read some internet buzz somewhere about, like, Scoop being a Crimson Guardsman. I think someone on his tank used that as their, like, avatar, Scoop in a Crimson Mm. Guardsman outfit. And I was like, what's that all about? So I had at least a little uh, sense that this might be a thing. But when I actually saw it for the first time, I was like, what? This writer is doing something interesting with this character that is unprecedented. And Scoop of all people. I mean, that is unique uniqueness piled on top of uniqueness. And uh, it's a thrill to watch. And and makes Operation Dragonfire watch a bull. Because I don't think any other G.I. Joe cartoon does that quite as prominently. It is the central relationship of this miniseries. And it's the central conflict like scoops kind of oh man my loyalties are to cobra but hey the joes aren't so bad that's interesting to me and that's my high and low gamble agrees okay i'm gonna go over mine quickly sorry just because i'm sitting on them and it's making me go crazy my actual high for this uh, episode well actually for dragonfire so far i really do appreciate the art direction uh, i think if I watched Operation Dragonfire with absolute, absolutely no sound and I just watched the pictures go by, it is a very pretty thing to look at, actually. It doesn't have the same veneer as Sunbow does, but I, I can fully appreciate how well vehicles are drawn. I like the character designs, uh, even if they do feel a little bit emptier uh, somehow than their Sunbow counterparts. I can't explain it to you exactly, but there's a certain noise that is in the design of the Sunbow characters that is missing from the Deke characters, but it doesn't upset me too much because they do go for as much accuracy as possible as far as the toys go. There are some missteps, but still, it's a very pretty cartoon to look at. And I enjoy the monastery, the way that it was um, you know, conceptualized, and the monks themselves look really great. Uh, they definitely... They did their research. These are definitely Tibetan monks uh, based on the way that they wear their robes and the hats and some of the ornamentation that's in the monastery itself. That was that was cool. I mean, to, to actually have that inferred just from a cartoon's location, whereas, you know, previous, uh, the Sunbow stuff is like, oh, we must be in Paris. Why? Because there's an Eiffel Tower. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that uh, that kind of thing is great. The vehicle, the vehicle detail is great. I like that design of Serana, and maybe not the highest point of the show, but I do dig it. I have to agree with Steve on the interplay between Scoop and the Crimson Guard and that whole uh, spiel that's going on there. I think that's very cool. And uh, low points for me is that for as pretty as uh, as Dragonfire is, it is still a difficult thing for me to watch. Like I don't sit there and cringe. I just I'm not excited about firing it up in my DVD player to watch. And you know how sometimes that can happen. You know, you, you know a series so well, you start it up, and then you're in love with it again, and you're already on, like, the fifth disc of your Buffy box set. You know what I mean? I find with Dragonfire, 
uh, it's a little bit of a chore to watch. And when I actually fire it up, I'm like, okay, it's still a bit of a chore to watch. And I think that's just because it's very uh, lackluster. There's very little that happens that's exciting. And there's, you know, love him or hate him, but uh, Friedman did actually have this, like, bravado and this uh, fanfare that was thrown into the Sunbow series that seems to have fizzled out in Deke. It, it's kind of like, I don't know, does that make sense to you? Maybe maybe I'm being like a, a bit of a hipster here. Maybe I'm like, oh, CDs are great, but they don't sound as good as vinyl kind of thing. But yeah. I think there's a subtlety <laughs> that, that Dragonfire has that um, the earlier stuff doesn't care much for. Like... They were having fatal fluffies on the G.I. Joe space station, okay? Uh, the, the, they really ripped the roof off in previous miniseries, where you'd have not one, not two, not three, not four MacGuffins, but like a MacGuffin every five minutes in each individual show. It was like, let's just completely rip the roof off reality. Whereas Dragonfire, it's both a strength and a criticism that we are so grounded in a single MacGuffin and the conflict raging between G.I. Joe and Cobra, which forces us to focus inwards to an internal conflict between two characters. Uh, it's a very much more personal story without the same kind of pizzazz and huge machinations of the Friedman era uh, G.I. Joe Sunbow miniseries. <laughs> Did you get any of that? Mm, I got this. Uh, what I, what I would say to Paul is that um, I, I agree with you that it's it's not pleasant to watch. One of the reasons I w- I think is is just Slaughter's Marauders coloring schemes. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure the colorists were like, how do, how do you have like blue on the bottom of a character when your sky is blue? It just starts messing with your eyes, you know. Yeah, so, uh, uh, we can we can talk Slaughter's Marauders color scheme on another episode because I really would love to do that. Touche. Um, <laughs> it's tough on screen. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. It's just tough. <laughs> it's, it's Gotta get tough. Yeah. In hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Highs and lows, Robert. Ah, um, well, probably my high for every episode will be that Scoop is the main character, essentially. <laughs> I think it's really cool that they kind of singled him out to be to the character that kind of brings the show forward. You know, the mystery of like why is he with Cobra, and and they do t- the, the, we will eventually learn a lot more about him. And yeah, my low will probably be <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but that it, it's it's less like the original you know bravado era, as Paul said, <laughs> than it is. You know, it, it's weird, but like it feels less like a kid's cartoon than it does more like, I suppose, an animated movie. You know, where you kind of, they're focusing more on drama and stuff than they are on trying to wow kids and go, hey, look at these cool vehicles and look at these cool situations. Go and recreate these, you know, when you're at home playing with your own toys. I mean, yes, we still get that. I mean, you get to see... <sighs> Lots of domed vehicles and a cool hiss in this episode. But I don't know, it didn't leave me wanting to go home, or at least, you know, to to finish watching the program and go, yes, let's play with these toys. 
I think Friedman understood how to make better adverts for toys than than Doug Booth does. At least in this episode, perhaps. Although yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna contest that because it certainly made me rediscover my love for the sort of the latter Joe and Cobra armor, if you can even call it that, with all that gloss. But to see them in combat in a sort of a very it's a, a through and through tank battle with no air support. It's tanks versus tanks. Tanks with uh, hidden tricks up their sleeves. Fair tanks enough. Tanks. But at the end of the day, it's it's tank battles, and it it stirred um, toy desire in me. I'm sorry it didn't uh, hit you the same way, Robbie. Oh well, can't all oh. be winners. <laughs> Cooch, did you give us your highs and lows? I snuck them in there. You want to do yeah, numbers? Let's do numbers, bros. I'm gonna crack it open with a solid three out of five, uh, which is always gonna be the conservative. Uh, middle path because I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it had the level of excitement that I would like from my G.I. Joe miniseries opener, but there was enough intrigue to balance that. And yes, you know immediately that you're dealing with a, a slightly less lavish affair, but it makes up for it just by being something different. And I think a three is a good point of departure. I anticipate things are going to get better. Things might get worse. But we'll see. I am going to give it a three because of all the stuff I mentioned in my highs, I think it's a it's a good-looking show for the most part and that there were some great uh, creative decisions made with it visually uh, that make it very interesting. And I am going to watch the next episode because I'm looking forward to seeing if they do anything with those targets that I saw for a second. And I'm going to continue watching to see what they do with the Night Vipers and if there's any other cool G.I. Joe vehicles or Cobra vehicles that I have in my collection or that I saw on the shelves as a kid um, in the show. And that I think that's the driving, the, the, the most honest driving force uh, behind this show for me. Otherwise, I do find it to be fairly lackluster and, and a little bit bland. You know, G.I. Joe kind of vibe. That's where I'm sitting. Um, that's why it gets a three. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably also going to give it a three. And that's mainly just because of Scoop. For me, the episode wasn't super action-packed. But I'm just so happy the Scoop's there. I'm going to keep the 33 train rolling. Yep. But, or it is a coincidence, but but we may as well call it like serendipitous that knowing is half the podcast is actually doing a review of this same miniseries. So it might be a good opportunity to uh, do a review of their review with our review on the last episode. So catch wow. that. Mm-hmm. Reviews <laughs> within Dempson. reviews. It's mental. I like it. Uh, maybe get to know a little bit of the uh, more casual G.I. Joe community. What say you? Hey, have you noticed that they don't have names for Operation Dragonfire? Like, n- nothing is uh, exciting as the Worms of Death or... Or crisis at the top of the world, or whatever. It's all just day one. The story is supposed to stand for its, you know, on its own, you know, with um, braggadocio. <laughs> he was all about the show, you know, all about the the, sh- the the pizzazz and the jazz hands, you know, from the the actions in the episode to the titles to like what the people are doing or what they're fighting. The flair, in other words. Which yeah. sadly is something that I feel these these shows are lacking. 
in the Steak series. There's less, less sort of like self-contentment. Uh, you know, the, the Sunbow stuff was very pleased with itself. It had, it had that Americanness about it. And I learned that, that it was it was a it was a union dispute, and that's why production moved to Canada, and DIC. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. A solid three all round for episode one, or should we call it day one of Operation Dragonfire? Catch us this time tomorrow for day two of Operation Dragonfire, where we will do a definitive sculpt section on none other than the Alley Viper. Will it be Fanta, or will it be a Bumblebee? Catch us tomorrow. <laughs> Cheers, guys.